Welcome to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast. I'm Greg Drevenson, Editor-in-Chief at Writer Magazine. Our guest today is Moshe K. Levy, known on YouTube and social media as Moto Mouth Moshe. Moshe is a renaissance man in the motorcycle world. He's written hundreds of articles and columns for motorcycle magazines, including Rider, American Rider, Motorcycle Consumer News, BMW Owners News, On the Level, American Iron, Backroads, and others. He owns and rides all kinds of bikes, everything from mopeds to BMWs to Harley-Davidson's. He restores old mopeds and motorcycles. He tests products. He's a marketing executive at a technology company, and he's a family man. We talked to Moshe about his protracted struggle with symptoms of long COVID, which prevented him from riding motorcycles. He found his way back from the abyss on a Honda Trail 125, which he wrote about in the February 2022 issue of Rider. We also talk about how he got started riding for motorcycle magazines, the bikes he has in his garage, and what he loves most about motorcycles. Moshe is a diehard enthusiast who is knowledgeable and passionate about all things on two wheels, and it was a pleasure speaking with him. Stay tuned and enjoy the episode. Moshe, welcome to the show. Thanks. Good to see you, or talk to you, sorry. Yeah, likewise. Well, we, we do get to see each other. Uh, we're on Zoom, get to see you via video. We're only going to use the audio, but uh, I know you're in uh, New Jersey. I'm out here in California, and we were just talking about this when we got started, is uh, you and I have known each other for quite a long time, but never actually met in person, which is a real shame. I know. I look forward to meeting you someday. I've been a writer reader for forever from before you were editor in chief. I think Mark Tuttle was editor in chief and I submitted to him back then. So I look forward to meeting you someday. Likewise. Well, that's one of the things I wanted to ask you about. I mean, you uh, you're quite the renaissance man when it comes to motorcycles. You've been contributing to a lot of magazines over the years, writer, uh, Thunder Press, now American writer, motorcycle consumer news, BMW magazines you know, hundreds of articles over the last uh, couple of decades. You've got a YouTube channel, Moto Mouth Moshe. Uh, you've got, and you're also, you've got a really eclectic taste in bikes. You're into everything from mopeds to BMWs to Harley Davidsons. Um, I know you ride bikes, you restore bikes, you test products. You're an executive at a technology company and you've got a family. How do you find time for everything? <laughs> I really, I really don't know. I mean, they tend to sort of collect around me the bikes and the projects as, as they come. Um, I've been doing this from well before I met my wife and she knows it's a passion of mine. Everybody at work knows it's a passion of mine. So, you know, at lunch breaks, they might see me go outside and start filming stuff or writing stuff. And they, they just know that's the way I am. So after a while, you know, you don't realize it, but after 20 years, you start looking back and saying, wow, I've published, you know, 200 articles and I've got seven motorcycles at home and I've got all these projects to do. And, and so it, it winds up just happening naturally, I'd say. Well, I mean, uh, you know, clearly it's a it's a passion and a hobby of yours. Uh, I had Scott Williams on the show uh, recently, and he's been writing for uh, Rider for about as long, about 20 years. And we have readers and, and listeners who are always kind of curious, like, how did you get started writing for magazines? I think that's something some people have a desire to do, but they don't know how to kind of get started with. How did you get started doing that? Yeah, I can, I can trace back uh, to when I was a teenager, actually, on this issue. So when I was a teenager, my dad brought home a moped and he was going to use it to commute to work, which he did about two or three times before he got sick of going so slow. And I fell in love with this thing. And when I got my license for it, I found myself documenting everything I did, how many miles I put on per day, what modifications I was making, what the results were. And me and my friends were just sitting around playing with timing and jetting and sprockets and all sorts of stuff just to try to get another extra mile an hour out of these things. And it continued forward. So when I got my first motorcycle, which was a, a Harley Sportster back in 1998, I found myself doing the same thing, except for now we had the internet. So I started putting it up online. 
And I was a voracious reader of all the magazines. And my favorite at the time was Motorcycle Consumer News, which went bankrupt, I think, in during COVID after something like 50 years in publication. Yeah, but, yeah, real bummer. Yeah, MCN was like the consumer reports of motorcycle magazines. There was no advertising and it was just chock full of technical information. And at the time, a big problem that the Harley sportsters were having were, was they would spit oil out of the air cleaner after a hard ride. And there was a lot of misinformation out there. Guys were doing crazy things to try to stop the oil from coming out, including I remember one guy was had an article about putting women's sanitary napkins in the air cleaner just to try to <laughs> soak it up. It was crazy. So I, I came up with a solution to it and I took some pictures and made some diagrams and I submitted it as a letter to the editor to MCN. And I think the editor's name back then was Dave Cyril. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. Yeah. And, um, and he's like, wow, this is great. Would you mind if we publish this? And I was like, sure. And then one thing led to another. And, you know, the next month he would call me and say, Hey, do you have any thoughts on this? Would you mind testing that? And, and that's how it started for me. So that was about 2003. That's when that started. Yeah. I remember Dave, I, I went to a bunch of press launches with him and he was uh, a, an engineer himself. He was probably definitely one of those uh, very detailed technical oriented kind of guys. And uh, often uh, sometimes you get a little bit lost in space with that kind of absent-minded professor thing. So I remember that he definitely had that, that was a big thing he liked about, uh, or he brought to MCN was contributors like you, his own writing and so forth. That was, yeah, was very technically detailed in a way that, um, you know, uh, some of the other magazines are, are, you know, they have different things that they focus on, but uh, so you're, you are detail oriented, very precise, keep track of what you're doing kind of guy all along. And then you found an outlet for that. So that sounds great. Yeah. Uh, what, what Dave, Dave was very exacting and he wanted me to really sort of push in terms of being able to explain technical concepts in layman's terms. And it actually dovetails into my real life day job. I'm, I'm working with basically all engineers and I'm, Primarily, I'm in sales and marketing, so my job is to get engineers translated into a language that, in some cases, lay people can understand better, but not make it so dumbed down that that you know engineers will start ignoring you. So it's it's a fine balance, and it's the same thing here. And I've found that I've had to regulate that or throttle that depending on who I'm writing for. Sometimes I write for specific magazines, and they're like, "Hey, nobody's going to understand what you're talking about here." And sometimes I write for a guy like Dave and they're like, what is this? You know, our, our audience is very, is very intelligent, very educated, very technical, and, and you're kind of using these easy words. So get with it. Right. And, and so it depends. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that makes sense that you, you sort of have to write to your audience, you know, in terms of what they expect, because uh, with technical stuff, it's easy to get down in the weeds. I know even just writing road tests these days, I mean, almost any, you know, sort of premium motorcycle now has not only uh, standard ABS, but it's got traction control, it's got multiple modes, it's got ride modes, it's got slide control, it's got, and it's too, it's very easy to get into the weeds of all of that stuff without sort of, you know, talking about what, what is the bike like to ride? So uh, trying to figure out what's enough to tell people, here's what's new or here's what's different, but not overdo it where they're uninteresting to read. So, yeah. Yeah, it, it's part of the reason why uh, there's a, a growing segment of folks that love older bikes because none of the nanny controls are there and the whiz-bang stuff is really not there. You have to kind of connect with it on a much more visceral level. I've found people that love old bikes just because of that. Sure. Um, I've, I, it's, it's funny. Sometimes I'm out testing product and you just see the different ways that different generations relate. I'll stop by someplace with like, you know, 50, 60 motorcyclists milling around 
and the younger crowd will come to me and want to talk about the camera on my helmet, not care about the bike that I'm riding. The older riders will come over and talk about the engine on my motorcycle and the middle-aged guys will talk about the accessories on it. So everybody's <laughs> kind of got their own, you know, their own interests in this. Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, thinking of, you were saying how, uh, unfortunately, motorcycle consumer news went out of business uh, during COVID. You know, there aren't that many motorcycle magazines in print left. Uh, Rider is one of them. Uh, motorcycle classics, you're talking about older motorcycles. That's that's a magazine I subscribe to that really uh, celebrates older motorcycles, you know, from, you know, the 50s, 60s, 70s, and so forth. Since Mitch Bain took over for the American Motorcyclist magazine at the AMA, you know, they have the Hall of Fame Museum. He really celebrates uh, a lot of classic motorcycles as well and old race bikes and the, the you know, significance of certain motorcycles. And, and uh, it seems to be something that resonates with, with a lot of readers uh, that have been riding for a long time. And like I said, kind of nostalgic for not just the bikes of their youth or the bikes that inspired them when they were younger, but also maybe the simplicity of them that they aren't as complex, they're easier to work on, easier to appreciate even just to see the, the exposed uh, engineering components. So. Yeah, exactly. I think that the industry, I'm talking about the magazine industry, has gone through some some massive changes in the past couple of years. My take on it probably isn't going to be a very popular one, but I think that essentially we're losing something. We're losing something when magazines like MCN 50 years old or American Iron, which was like the preeminent Harley magazine, probably 35, 40 years old, goes out. And what's replacing it now is essentially almost like a quid pro quo internet model where, you know, some products are going to be given out to some whiz bang kid who's 20 or 25 years old and has a gazillion followers on Instagram. And he's definitely going to give it a five-star review because he's getting this jacket for free or this helmet for free. And, and you wind up kind of missing out on, on a more, on a deeper level on a true analysis of what is this product and is it really going to work? I hate to say it, but like after after a couple of years of getting top of the line stuff, it, it just stops wowing you. So, you know, if, if Arai sends me a new thousand dollar helmet today, or Aris that sends me a $1,500 suit or motorport or whatever, I mean, they're great products. Don't get me wrong, but I'm not wowed off the bat just because it's expensive. Right. And that comes with experience because I've tested a thousand of them before. So it, it's yet another one. So I can really focus objectively on what makes this thing work in daily commuting? What are its shortfalls? What are its benefits? And I think that all that's missing with the flashy two-minute video and all the neon and the disco music and all that stuff, that's where things seem to be headed. And I, I know I sound like an old man, but it, it, I think we're losing something. I think it's turning into a diet of junk food that feels good to eat for a couple of minutes until you get a stomach ache. If I, got, if I went out and spent $1,500 on something because of a two minute review. And then I found out that in real life, it really wasn't working as well as I thought it should, because I wasn't, it wasn't reviewed by a serious person. I, I would, I would understand that whole junk food analogy. Well, I, you know, I can certainly relate to you. I mean, uh, heading a, one of the, you know, like I said, few remaining print magazines, it's been around since the mid seventies. I mean, we're approaching our 50th anniversary. Um, I appreciate being able to read uh, long form writing, you know, reviews. Uh, I prefer the the print version of our magazine over the digital one. We of course have website, you know, a lot of stuff on our website. We even have a, a YouTube channel, but yeah, it's, it, there's, I think viewers, readers, attention has obviously been, uh, you know, balkanized or just sort of, you know, fractured into a, a, a million different directions with social media and YouTube and quick hits and things like that. 
And um, there is, I agree, there is not as much of an appreciation for kind of documenting what's going on in the motorcycle industry with certain events and products and, and history and people in the way that uh, you do in a, in a magazine. I mean, uh, you know, again, websites are, are valuable. It's how a lot of people can consume information, but um, that there is, there is, it's a pretty sad thing that Cycle World, which was around since 1962, Motorcyclist, which was around since the early 1900s, it had celebrated its 100th anniversary before it uh, went out of print. For Motorcycle Consumer News, again, you're talking about, you know, decades of long history of the magazine. And whether it's the lack of support from readers, lack of support from advertisers, whatever it may be, I think it's kind of a shame. You know, it's uh, magazines aren't dead. There's They've been saying print is dead. The internet killed print for decades. And that's never actually been the case, but it has certainly changed the landscape. Absolutely. It has. I think it's it, it truly is from, at least this is anecdotal. I'm not sure if this is scientifically provable, but it's definitely a generational shift, right? So back when I was writing for Dave in the beginning, and I, I hadn't done anything on YouTube until late in the game, around 2016, 2017. And I was telling Dave, I was like the editor of Motorcycle Consumer News. I was like, look, you know, I can describe the sound of this exhaust you want me to test all you want with all sorts of fancy adjectives, but people really want to hear it. So why don't we make a video that is a supplement to the article and say, do the whole test in the article, print that, and then say for sound clips and so on, visit this YouTube page. And he was resistant at the time. He, he didn't really want to do that. And that's how I started my, my YouTube channel, just as a supplement to the stuff that I was publishing. Like I published this article, but this is something that you really have to hear in order to form an opinion uh, or see, or, or whatever the case may be. I think that I have other examples, you know, I, 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 there are people that I've seen some BMW dealers on in the Midwest where they're the dealership is making snippets or videos or, or posts trying to move bikes like the R1800 or the Transcontinental, which is a sort of a traditional motorcycle. Right. And you can tell that their marketing manager is 23 years old. You know, it's all sorts of fancy disco music and neon lights and, and you know, three seconds and fancy camera angles that are going in and out like this. And that's not what the 55-year-old or 60-year-old guy who's buying that bike wants to see. That's not what appeals to him. I guess because I have a degree in marketing, I'm really sensitive to this issue. The audience has to be spoken to in a language that they understand and want to hear. An 80-year-old wants different things to hear than a 60-year-old, than a 40-year-old, than a 20-year-old. And I think that the internet speaks loudly to younger generations. But my generation, I'm 47 are interested in both the best of print, long form journalism, effort that goes into it, more than 200 characters to describe complicated issues, you know, deep thought. And, and we also want the internet. I also want the interactiveness of being able to communicate directly with the author, to hear things, to see things, to get, you know, real life reactions. It's all good. It starts to get bad when you, when you start looking at it in, in a fixed pie scenario where one just simply wipes out the other. You, you lose something, at least at least to me, you lose something. I, I agree. I find it also interesting that there's the uh, magazines that were in print that have essentially gone to online only. You know, that's the case for Cycle World and Motorcyclist. But then you also have the opposite, which is not exactly what you would expect. You have something like Iron and Air, which, you know, started off as an Instagram handle and got 
very popular. And those guys were like, hey, we have a kind of an artistic approach to things. We like interesting photography and artwork and so forth. We'd like to put together a magazine. So they put together a coffee table style journal. Adventure Writer, which was a advrider.com was a forum for a long, long time. That's where you've got ride reports from adventure riders and dual sport riders all over the world. Just last summer, they launched a journal form magazine where they can preserve some of their best stories, best content, but also have it laid out with the photographs in a way that you just can't get the same experience looking at it, read it on a web page. And uh, so, yeah, it's interesting that there's a little bit of back and forth between, you know, some people are launching magazines that are more niche publications or they're more expensive per issue and catering towards a niche audience because they have some of their fans or readers or audience who would really like to hold something in their hand and get away from a screen. I'm one of those people, I'm probably like you, I work at my computer all day, every day. So for me, a motorcycle ride is my escape from uh, a computer. And I don't necessarily want to consume my motorcycle content on a computer unless I have to. I'm doing it through work, of course, but when I can sit on my couch uh, sit on my back patio and open up a magazine or open up a book and, and consume something that way, it sort of gives me a relief from the screen and the immediacy of everything. So, yeah. Absolutely. Plus you see some other developments, which I found interesting. So for example, Harley Davidson is uh, the 800 pound gorilla in the room. And when you buy one, and it's been a while since I've had a new one, but you become a member of the hog or Harley owners group chap. It's like a, a national owners group of Harley owners, and they give you a newsletter, which is last I checked, it was something like 35 pages or 40 pages. You, you can look at tiny BMW clubs, tiny relative to Harley, like BMW Riders Association. And that their newsletter was taken over by uh, my friend, John Flores. He revamped the magazine and he made it. I mean, I'm telling you, it's world-class, world-class photography, layout, graphics, the content is excellent. It mostly comes from the readers. They're really putting effort into it. John Lefton, I think Chris Parker runs the magazine now, but like yeah. you see a, a magazine with RA, I don't know how many members it has, but it's a couple thousand. It's a drop in the bucket compared to what Harley has. Right. And yet they're putting out this quality content that you get just for being you know, a member of that club. The larger BMW club uh, has a magazine called Owner's News, BMW MOA, Owner's News. Again, it, it's like a real magazine. It's got, you know, 60 pages, 50 pages, full color, well-written articles by, you know, some, some well-known people in the industry. So even if there's um, setbacks on the national stage for magazines, the clubs are in some cases picking up the slack where that left off and continuing the tradition of quality print journalism. And of course, they have forums and they have YouTube channels and Instagram and all the rest. They have a full picture for everybody. Right. I think we all know we need to bring younger riders into the sport and those younger riders are not necessarily reading print, but we need everything is what I'm saying. We need everything. Oh, I, I, I totally agree. I, I do. So uh, one of the things that you've been, again, you've, you have figured out a way to sort of generate content or produce content that you do videos, you do some writing. One of the things that uh, you, you had an article or you had a feature in Rider in our March issue, you meet the healthiest people on Honda is the title we gave it, is because you had an experience with long COVID. So you've been a rider for a long time and you had a an, an experience where you weren't able to ride. So sort of share with us what, was, what that was like. When you wrote that story, you told me about it. I wanted, I thought that was an interesting thing to convey to readers because again, it was this, it wasn't just about the bike. It was sort of about the, 
the experience that you had with that particular bike motorcycle. Tell us a little bit about that backstory. Sure. So I, I contracted COVID after about a year of it being out. And I, it was unexpected. It was actually on the day I was supposed to get my vaccination when they were first coming out. And the COVID itself wasn't that bad. It was two weeks of a flu type symptoms, no, no big deal. But about 16 days after I contracted it, I got hit with symptoms I've never had before. And they were completely debilitating. I had vertigo and extreme headaches, migraines, loss of balance, um, hot flashes, oh, you name it, I had it. And I wasn't able to, because of the vertigo and, and the balance, I wasn't able to walk for a couple of weeks. It was like, I can't describe it really, but it was like walking forward at three miles an hour was scrambling my brain at the same level as like hitting a blind apex curve too hot would have before, you know, where your brain just, just like, holy, you, you, you're not going to make this and, and stuff coming at you at three miles an hour was having that effect on me now. So the motorcycles in a sense are what motivated me to try to get better. I'd go to the garage and be like, one day I'm going to ride these things again. And I can't do it now. I, I couldn't concentrate on any of the stuff that was necessary to ride properly. And over time I got better. I started walking, started running started getting on the big bikes, but you'd have these holes in your memory where like, I would find myself entering a corner and something that would come natural, like the downshift and the lean, I would right there in the moment say, oh my God, what side is my clutch lever on? I mean, it's stuff that you shouldn't have to think about, especially after 20 years of riding, but it was happening. I mean, I, I forgot where I lived and certain around that time too. I had to use the GPS to get home. I forgot the codes of how to get into my house. Don't ask. Anyway, long story short, I said to myself, look, I've got to get into a situation where I can ride something. I'm not going to let this go because if I let this go, this is like my biggest passion and I'm not going to, I'm not going to recover from it. Then I've got to stay on two wheels somehow, but I've got to do it in a way that's safe because you know, your six, 700 pound bike in a curve when you forgot what side the clutch lever is on is, is not safe. You can get in a lot of trouble. So I picked up this Honda trail, uh, which was at the time, and it, I still is very difficult to find, but I was very persistent. And then I, instead of waiting for other people to call me, I was just calling every dealer around. It occurred to me, by the way, as a tip to other people to start calling dealers in cities, because as it turns out, they were just sitting there in the Bronx where nobody would want to pick up. <laughs> nobody wants a Honda trail in the Bronx, it turns out. So the, the bike is sitting there collecting dust while other people are driving, you know, three days in a pickup truck to pick it up in Hawaii. So I said, okay, I, I, I got this trail. It's very, very slow. It, it only does about 50 miles an hour and it's a semi-automatic. So there's no shifting necessary with your hand. And I started to ride it. And it, it's so forgiving. If you make a mistake, it's so happy to keep going. And it doesn't judge you the way a big bike does. Like you, you know, you, you screwed up the, the line in the curve or whatever here, it doesn't really matter what your line in the curve is. And, and it really got me back into it again. And then I started doing, you know, 20 miles a day, 50 miles a day, hundred miles a day. And then finally I got to the point where I was doing 250 miles a day, 300 miles when you're going, you know, 25 miles an hour, that's a lot. That's a long day. Right then weekend trips with it, then building back up to riding my big bikes again. And eventually I got back on my big bikes again. I still can't ride the way I used to. I'm not going to be anywhere near the middle of the pack, never mind the front of it, but I can ride my bike comfortably and not make mistakes and not forget, you know, what side is what. So I got back and I really think I owe that bike the credit for it, because if that bike wasn't there, I don't know what I would have done. So I owe the people at Honda. I think uh, a great thank you. I've never spoken to anyone at Honda, but 
if anyone from there is listening, I, I owe you a thank you for that bike. Well, you know, I know that you're saying that the Honda Trails a bike that's been hard to come by because the, it sort of connects people to nostalgia of Honda Trails. And those are, are even the, the originals are, are very valuable. But what I, like I said, what I found very connected me to your story is just that you weren't willing to give up something that brought so much joy to your life. But you also knew that you weren't able to experience it the way that you had before uh, at the same level. You know, like I said, you can't ride your BMW R1200 RT if you've got brain fog but that you sort of were forced back into riding something that was a little bit more simple, but that also connected you just to the more basic joy of riding a motorcycle. And just, and you had some photos in that feature. We can have a link to it in the show notes where you really went exploring on that thing. I mean, Honda Trail, it's a little bit light off-roading. You took it on down some dirt roads and, and you explored around cities and you really kind of went everywhere because you're near urban environments and, and wooded environments and all sorts of places. And uh, yeah, it was, uh, found it really fascinating. No, I appreciate that. Yeah. That, that's the flavor, right? So it was it was disheartening. I mean, my my main bike was a is still an R twelve hundred RT BMW, and that bike wants to go thousand mile days. And when you can't do thousand mile days on it, you get this feeling. I know it sounds silly, but you get this feeling that it's unhappy with you. It, it doesn't want to go ten miles an hour, or twenty miles an hour in town, you know, running groceries. It, it wants to go, and you're unable to do that with it. And it's it it sort of spirals into this vortex of mental depression. It's like. I can't ride the way I used to. And my bike is unhappy with me because it's not being ridden the way it wants to. But this little trail, it's designed to go off-road. I've never gone off-road before. I never entered that genre. I have no idea what it's like. And now I was looking around, you know, construction sites. What's it like to just go 50 feet off-road? What's it like to take this trail? I have no idea where this goes. And I started doing that. And in the beginning, it really helped too, because I'm away from traffic. If I make a mistake, I'm just by myself. I'm just going to fall down alone and not hit somebody. And it wound up being the most relaxing thing. It wound up bringing me back slowly, slowly. This bike was really what I needed at this particular time in my life. It just came across. And it was one of those purchases where even if I was feeling healthy, I would have bought it anyway. I have some bikes like that. I have a, a Moto Guzzi V7 Racer. It's a 2013. I, I think it was on the cover of Rider that I noticed it for the first time. It was, it was on the, yeah, beautiful yeah with bike. the chrome tank. Yeah. And I called that day and I put a deposit <laughs> down. I never saw it. I never rode it. I don't care if it runs. It's one of those things where you feel like a mule kicked you in the gut. That thing's so beautiful. I have to have it. I don't care about the functionality. I just want to look at it. Right. And the trail was the same thing. When I saw that thing, I was like, wow, that thing looks cool. And I just had to have it. And it is, like you said, it's I'm going 30, 40 miles an hour. There's no features here. There's no fancy radio or anything else. And that wind rushing against you, that's it. That's all you need. That's really the basic and the that was the healing that I needed to come back from COVID. Well, you had an article previously in Rider called An Ode to the Moped. So like you're not a stranger to, you know, mopeds, smaller bikes. You've got a Yamaha YSR 50. You've restored some of these bikes. So what is your attraction to mopeds and mini bikes and smaller bikes? Because you clearly like to ride the big ones as well. But what, what is your connection with the smaller bikes? Well, it's nostalgic for me. So when I was 15, I had a moped, which is what was basically my gateway drug to motorcycles. And I really, really loved riding that thing. So to give you an idea of how crazy it got, by the time I was done with it from ages 15 to 16 and a half, when you get your, your car license, I had put something like 13 or 14,000 miles on that Moto Marina moped, which was unheard of for back then, I, I just basically spent every waking moment, including skipping school and everything else, just to ride that thing around all day. So I've always had a soft spot in my heart for mopeds. What jolted it back was 
I was actually on a trip with, with John Flores. He was writing an article for um, Roadrunner and we were taking a tour through New England. Uh, it was a, you know, long mile days and I was on my RT and on my way home, I saw this woman riding a pook and I hadn't seen one of these things in years. And I got so excited. I was like flipping out because it, it was like probably 10 or maybe 15 years before I saw one in person. And I was like flagging her down and, and she was, she probably thought I was a maniac. And I pulled her over to the side of the road and I was like, oh my God, that's a pook. And I started asking her questions and she's like, oh, I've got a surprise for you. If you want to see it. I said, sure. This is somebody I, I, I didn't know and just met. So I followed her back to her house and her husband comes out and he goes, oh yeah, we've got matching pooks. And he pulled another one out of the shed and they had two 1980 pook maxis that were like in perfect condition. And the guy looked at me like I was an alien. He goes, I, I don't understand you. You're on a $20,000 BMW with all this fancy gear. And you just got back from touring around New England for you know a week. And you're like flipping out over these stupid mopeds. And I was like, I can't explain it, but it's just something about it. So that started the, the desire to go find a, a pook and you know restore it, which I did. Uh, I'll, I'll have an article about that coming out soon. But the, the bike is... I think I worked on it for about a year or so and, and I got it going. So that one's ready to go. And the YSR was just freak chance. I was on Facebook one day and the publisher of American Iron, Buzz Cantor, said that he had this YSR. And Buzz is, is, a, is a pretty tall guy, pretty big guy. And yeah. the YSR is this little tiny mini bike, 50cc mini bike. And he's like, you know, I got this bike, but I, I can't fit on it. I, right away, I was like, I'll take it. So I made arrangements. It had 71 original miles. Uh, it was a 1987 YSR 50. I got it home and I basically tore it down to the frame and rebuilt it and got all the rust out of the tank. And because it's a Yamaha, it started on the first kick as soon as I put gas in it. <laughs> so, so that worked out nicely. And that's still sitting there. That's one of those bikes. I mean, I really don't ride it too much. It's only got 700 miles on it now, but it's just to have it. It's such a cool bike. So uh, can you actually have it plated where you can ride on the street? Or is Oh, it yes. Just, yeah. Yeah. Plated okay. and insured. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, I didn't know if that would be a, a street legal. So, so you you've restored your your YSR. You've restored a Pook. Uh, what other projects you got going on? Like I said, I know you've got quite a few bikes in your garage. Yeah. So the the latest one is a um, a Harley Sportster that I picked up from a guy in a couple months ago, and it's a 2004, which is the first year of the rubber mount Sportster. My first motorcycle was a Sportster, but it was the old fashioned one where the engine was, you know, mounted to the frame and it felt like sitting on a washing machine just to ride that thing. This one is a little bit, you know, smoother and it serves as a sort of a bridge between the trail and the RT. The RT is like a full size 1200 sport touring machine and the Sportster is this little bike. So it, it kind of like I can I can go to whatever flavor I'm feeling that day whether it's, if, if it's something like, let's say short distance, I'll take the Sportster. If it's long distance, I'll jump on the RT again, but it's just cool. I, that bike needed a little work to get it roadworthy. And now it's all shiny and nice. And it gives me a whole new thing to play on and get accessories for that. And then write about those, it, it turns into a whole nother Megillah. Right on, right on. So I have a question. So it uh, sounds like you've got at least a half, half a dozen bikes or so in your garage. So what's the biggest challenge you face, you know, keeping all those bikes running? Yeah, that's that's a problem. See, the, the issue is that when you have this sort of like, uh, I'll use the phrase anal retentive, anal retentive mindset with your bikes, like even the slightest problem with one gnaws at you. And I think now I have I have six and a half because six running motorcycles and one that's in pieces. And the, you know, they all have something going on at, at some time or another, especially the Moto Guzzi, which is, you know, Italian. So I, I don't need to say anything else. 
and the sportster has this and that. And, and you say to yourself, oh, what am I going to get to this? What am I going to do? Because I've got young kids and I've got a full-time job and all that, but you just have to let it go and ride them for what they are and fix them as they need it and try to get, you know, try to have one in the garage that never needs anything. And I've found that my BMWs, uh, this is my third generation RT. I had oil heads and hex heads and now this wet head RT. They are just tanks. I've never had anything happen to any of them. And they're like, I've probably got 150,000 miles on various RTs over the years and nothing ever course, now that I'm saying that the thing will blow up tomorrow, but, <laughs> but, but that that's the bike that I know I can count on. Right. If I have to go on a trip and it's not going to let me down, of course you can count on the Honda trail too, but I'm not going to take that on a, you know, cross country. Right. Right. Although that would be fun too. I, I mean, some guys, there was a guy on the trail group that took the trail across the trans America really? uh, trail, which is like 5,000 miles off road. And it's insane. And you know, they're camping and going off road. And it was such an adventure, so much fun. It showed him like pointing the front wheel into the sea in California. I was like, that is really cool. Guys are doing really good stuff out there. Yeah, I guess if you've got nothing but time, there's, I read in a magazine somewhere or on a, you know, somewhere about a, a guy, I think he was Australian, who was riding an Australian, they call it a posty bike. And it's basically like 110 CC Honda. It's kind of like a, a, a super cub or something like that. And he was riding it around. He'd ridden it all around Australia and he was going into, into Europe and he was a young guy. So he was just kind of like doing it on a shoestring and so forth. And I've heard of people with, again, very small displacement motorcycles doing the Trans America Highway from basically, you know, from Alaska down to uh, Ushuaia, something like that. So yeah, if you're not in a rush, uh, you know, some of those bikes can be, uh, like I said, they'll, they'll get you there, you know. And uh, Well, there's one guy, I discovered this, I'm really late to this party, but I discovered him after I bought my trail. It's a British guy, an engineer named Ed March, and he's got a site called C90 Adventures. And if you haven't seen this, this is a must see. I mean, you binge this stuff. The guy rode a C90, which is this crappy Honda moped. And he rode it around the world, everywhere. Iran, India. And he, the way he films and the way he comments, it's like that dry British humor that people seem to love. He's so entertaining. Um, that's another one for people who love small bikes and want to see adventures. Definitely check out C90 Adventures at March. Okay, will do. Yeah, and now that you mentioned that, I think there's, at least one or two guys are doing something with the Honda monkeys or again, the, I would think the challenge of riding cross country or around the world on some of these smaller bikes is just the, the load capacity. You really have to be, you know, optimize what you're going to carry and how you can carry it. So uh, that, that would be one of the bigger challenges, but uh, yeah, I, you know, it's funny, you were talking about riding smaller bikes. I had just recently tested the BMW K1600 GTL, which is you know, it's like a spaceship that thing's 800 pounds. It's got 160 horsepower inline six. It's really a fantastic motorcycle. Um, but return that to BMW and just got a Honda CB500X, which is not as small as a trail, but you know, it's just interesting to go. You talked about how, when you're on a, a large motorcycle, that sometimes you feel like you can be in judgment of the bike. Like you, if you don't live up to its potential in terms of how long you're riding it or how fast you're riding it, but to get on that CB500X, it's light, it's playful, it's unassuming. I mean, there's, of course, the old saying that everybody, you know, it's always more fun to ride a slow bike fast than a fast bike slow, but it's, uh, it, it does sort of kind of like you recalibrate your brain and simplify things and uh, just really focus on the joy of riding without being like, oh, well, did I go through that corner at the right speed and, and my shifting and so forth? It's like, I don't even think about that sort of stuff. I agree. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's exactly right. It, it tends to just bring things back to what they always were about in the first place. It's not about the whiz-bang features and the radio and the integration of the GPS and, and the fairings and the, all that stuff. It's, it's really about the feeling of, I think the drummer of Rush, uh, Neil Peart, he, he wrote about this in his book, Ghost Rider, which, which is excellent if anybody wants to read that. It's about him riding across country when he lost his wife and only child. As a, as, a, as a means of therapy for himself. And he, he said that that feeling of motion is almost like, like a mother cradling a baby in her arms or, or, or just this, this sort of time and space where you're free from discursive thoughts and you can just focus on this one thing, which feels so good. Going slow on a simple bike where there's nothing there but you and that really brings down everything to the essentials of what makes riding great. It's not about anything else. All that other stuff is just fluff. Yeah. It, it really is about just enjoying that feeling for what it's worth. Well, I mean, you know, a lot of people think that, well, like you said, you started riding a moped when you were 15 or 16 and they're like, oh, well, you'll outgrow that. You want to graduate to a larger bike. And that's what a lot of us do. And, and you want to have, uh, you know, go faster or have, a, a, you know, a different kind of riding experience. But yeah, I mean, it's sort of like when the Honda Grom came out, that sort of really was the kind of re jump-started the, the mini bike movement. There's been, you know, after the Grom came out and then they did the monkey, then Kawasaki has their Z125. Benelli has the TNT 135, uh, this new CF Moto Papio, these small bikes, they've, there's the whole small bore movement. I know there's a small bore festival or gathering at, at the Barber Motorsports Park. The amount of the degree of customization that some of these shops that specialize in it, like Man in the Box and Steady Garage, it's, it's just mind blowing what they can do. It's it's like the same uh, level of skill and intensity and investment that people would put into choppers or other custom bikes, but they're doing it on a bike that's a 125 cc, and they're doing billet swing arms, and they're doing you know uh, big bore kits, and they're doing custom wheels and everything. It's 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 really amazing. So it's it's just this whole other side of the motorcycle world that has really blossomed in the last five or six years it's been pretty fascinating so. it is it's also like i think in my case it's a swing back in, in in the pendulum in the sense that i used to for 20 something years i commuted long distance on my rt to work i was doing 110 miles a day wow. um, on the turnpike which is probably one of the worst or most dangerous highways in the country and i did that and and you, to do that you have to be you know, you have to be the alpha dog. You have to be basically going 15% or so faster than traffic so that you don't have all the steel and cages around you and trying to survive all that and going pretty fast most of the time every single day. The upside is I could test product and put a lot of wear on it in a very short period of time. And you know, I'm putting 25,000 miles a year on the bike so I can, you know, wear stuff out and see how, how, how it holds up. And now on the small bikes, now that I moved closer to work, um, on the small bikes and with apps that I use, I, my favorite is Scenic, where it just routes you into these tiny bicycle roads and trails that are so far from traffic and so beautiful. And it's in this area I've lived off all my life, and I still didn't know these existed. And it's like the opposite of the turnpike. It's the opposite of doing you know 90 miles an hour all day. It's, it's going slower and stopping at the local shops and just stopping to smell the roses, checking out all the nature around you, being part of it instead of rushing through it. Um, of course, going fast on a big bike is fun. I'm not saying it's not, but for me, I'm just like making up for lost time. A lot of highway commuting, it, it, it gets it gets old. And so sure. maybe this will get old after a while, but for now, I'm really enjoying it. 
Good. That's a, that sounds great. Hey, uh, Moshe, I, I really appreciate your time. I appreciate what you do. I mean, what you've been doing for 20 years uh, for the motorcycle industry, for the motorcycle audience and, and enthusiasts, uh, your contributions to Rider. I know we've got more on the pipeline for, for those that subscribe to Rider. They'll have more of your articles will be coming through. What's the best way for people if they want to check out some of your work? I know you've got a YouTube channel. Uh, we sure. can include links in the show notes, but if people want to check out what you've got, yeah. So my, my website is MKL, which is my initials, MKL sportster.com. It started out 20 years ago is about my sportster. That's why it's got that name. So MKL sportster.com has my articles and pictures and uh, some of the videos. And my YouTube page is, um, is Moto Mouth Moshe, M-O-S-H-E.com. And I should say, Greg, also that I, I appreciate what you do at Ryder. Ryder is to me right now, the best print magazine available it's got a variety of different interests in there. All the different genres are covered. Great columnists are, are in there. Um, I love Scott Williams pieces, travel pieces. And, and I, I think that, that you're providing a service that, um, that, that, that is very valuable to the motorcycle community. So I wanted to thank you for, the, for doing that. Well, thanks. Uh, like I said, I feel fortunate to still be working at a, at a magazine where we can have a, a print uh, publication. I mean, you know, it's us, there's Roadrunner. You mentioned some of the BMW Club magazines and there's other brand magazines, um, Motorcycle Classics. There's there's a handful of us uh, that, that are still there. The audience isn't big, but, uh, you know, again, that's something that I, I've enjoyed working for the magazine for as long as I have. The people I've worked with, contributors like you, I worked for Mark Tuttle for years. You know, he was he really led the magazine for 32 years as editor in chief. And so be, to be able to kind of carry on that tradition and that legacy is great. Yeah, 2024, we'll be celebrating our 50th anniversary. So fingers crossed, everything will be going well and we'll uh, be able to really celebrate that in, in the next couple of years. So thanks again for your time. And um, for the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, I'm Greg Drevenstead. Thanks for listening and keep the rubber side down. If you've enjoyed listening to the Writer Magazine Insider Podcast, please subscribe, leave us a positive rating, and tell your friends. We also encourage you to visit writermagazine.com, where you can get the latest in motorcycle news and reviews and sign up for our free weekly newsletter. You can also subscribe to print and digital editions of Writer Magazine, which is published 12 times a year. Thanks again for listening.